Hi, Mom. Hi, Andrew. So uh, I sent you the interview I did with my guest. What do you think folks are going to get out of this one? Well, it started me thinking because he took something, I guess was an older way of doing things, and then he thought of a better way of doing it, such a better way. And I thought, I should be able to think of something that (laughs) is so obvious and that could be simplified or done better, uh, and and I can't. <laughs> well, it's so obvious in hindsight, right? Yes, but m- my reaction was, start thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what can I come up with? Not that I'm in the computer field at all, as you know. Did you but... think of anything? <laughs> Not yet, but my mind is still working. I'm Andy Raskin, and this is The Bigger Narrative. In each episode, I talk with leaders about their strategic narrative, the story they're telling that's bigger than their companies and their products, a story about change in their customer's world, a story that drives success in sales, marketing, fundraising, recruiting, product, everything. And I am so excited that my guest for this episode is David Cancel, CEO of Drift. Over 50,000 companies use Drift software to let website visitors chat immediately with their teams. Drift wasn't first to market with that, but it was first to market with a narrative about how the world had changed such that having such software was suddenly urgent. And that made all the difference. From his home outside Boston, Dave told me that earlier in his career, he used to be chief product officer at HubSpot. He would pitch products with the standard, you have a problem, here's our solution, here's why it's better than the other solutions. But eventually he started to connect the dots on all the big products, companies, whatever you want to call it, brands that have I have seen arise and how much of it is due to the context that they're operating in, meaning the timing, because I think this is kind of also from experience of like, wow, I've seen that idea before. That's almost identical to this company that went out of business. What's different? And it's like, oh, the context is different. The time is different. Like there's a whole bunch of reasons why it matters now. And underlying that is that human behavior has shifted and that people are ready for this idea. The market is finally ready for an idea. And I don't, I don't really care at this point in my career about my own idea or being right. Ideally, I don't want to create my own momentum because it's nearly impossible. I want to ride a momentum that exists already and try to use that center market. The, the starting point for a lot of folks is the problem. But yes. the starting point for you was not that. It was what's the shift no. that mm-hmm. causes the problem that can be used as a context to yes. make the case that this problem is urgent. Exactly. And it could be because I also thought that um, most of the problems that we solve are age-old problems, right? There, There's probably really no real real new problems if you abstract it far enough away. And so I thought, not really the problem, it's the shift, it's the timing, it's the why now question, which I, you know, I think I've heard um, Doug Valentine, Sequoia founder, say that a long time ago in one of his talks at, at GSB, which was like, why now? Mm-hmm. Why now? Mm-hmm. That's the question. And I finally, you know, I heard that for, for like a bazillion years. And then, it, you know, I was finally at the right point in my history uh, to be like, oh, why now? That yep. is the question. Oh, and I get it now. A lot of folks have a why now slide in their deck. 
and you know it's mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, <laughs> and it's uh, and it's usually like a hodgepodge of stuff. Like, why now? Because mm-hmm. this is happening, and that's happening, and this is happening. Mm-hmm. And you did something different, which is what I think is sort of the key, which is you named it, and yeah. you started with it. Could you tell me about what was the shift you saw? And how did you see it? I think everyone is trained now to have the why now story in their deck. And it's, as you said, it's usually buried somewhere in the deck, but it's not the impetus for starting the product or the idea of the company. It's usually, you know, retrofitted in. And, it, and, and most of the times when I see the why now, it's like it's a mixture of several different trends and they're trying to backfit their idea or their company or their product into those trends. Totally, totally. For us, it started the other way, right? It was like, what is the shift? And for me, I had been looking at a whole bunch of different shifts in my own life, but it really started with just examining what I was doing and the people around me were doing differently right now than ever before. And when we started Drift, I was really fascinated by everyone from your grandmother down to your uh, niece or nephew or the kid next door using messaging all the time. And I thought it was interesting because they were texting all the time. And obviously this had been going on a long time in Europe and in Asia for a long time, but it had really hit the U.S. and had spread globally. I just thought it was interesting because it was one of those things that I, you know, had been doing since the beginning of my career. But all the geeks on the Internet were on IRC like myself and were using uh, different chat systems, whether it was AIM or ICQ or whatever, all these kind of different things, even Skype many years later. But it wasn't normal. It wasn't something that you would see your, you know, grandmother, or your mom using, you know, it was kind of just for us makers, us kind of geeks on the line. So I was, I was kind of fascinated by that and started to think like, wow, the, the technology behind it really isn't very different. It's the same technology. Like Slack is not, Slack started with an IRC clone internally. It's not very different than IRC. It almost looks identical to IRC, which I used 25 years ago. So what's different? Different is now it's normal. Now it's accepted. Now it's become a default way of communicating. And so that was my aha moment of like, can we use messaging? And in our case, it was you know website messaging, so it was in the form of chat. Could we use chat in a way that I hadn't really seen used before, or at least successfully? And not because the technology or that, or because we made it prettier or made it easier, we did all those things, but because the world was now ready for it and the world was now defaulting and wanting it. And so that was kind of my lens, my view. And then I said, okay, if we can do that, then maybe we can use that as a wedge to get into a market and to try to resegment or reimagine that market. And, you know, the greatest shift that we saw was that we thought we were moving from a world where specifically in B2B, that the company controlled the sales process and how you bought something to a world where the buyer had all the power and the buyer could control the process. That was the big shift we saw. And messaging was kind of our way of entering the market on an existing trend and trying to resegment that market. And we named it along the way. We named it Conversational Marketing. We wrote a book for Wiley. We did a whole bunch of things to try to popularize that that category and in 2017 we were the only one using it now there's probably like 100 companies using that category and Forrester Gartner Series Decisions all those kind of people recognize it so it's been pretty interesting to watch yeah that, that has been amazing and and I think very critically 
you didn't only name what I so I, I have the I've been using these terms new game and old game. And yeah, know, yeah. The, the new game is basically the category. It's and I like it because it puts it in terms of the customer, like not what is what is our new kind of technology, but what is the new mm-hmm. approach, the new way of winning that customers have to adopt in order to win. And you mm-hmm. didn't only name that, you also in various ways, named the old game. So I'll never forget the first time I saw the drift pitch, which was Dave Gerhardt. He was giving it at mm-hmm. Open View Ventures at a um, oh yeah 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 conference they had for the portfolio. I was speaking too, but he went on I think earlier than me, and I, I was watching his pitch and. It's just amazing. He puts up this this slide that's one of those uh, circle with a slash through it over, yeah, over yeah, an yeah, image yeah. of the word forms. Yep. And mm-hmm. I'll never forget the woman sitting next to me. She's a VP of marketing. And like w- during the break later, she, she said to me like, oh, my God, I just called my head of sales and, and told him, oh, my God, the, the, the way we're doing marketing is wrong. I just realized like the whole thing <laughs> we're doing is wrong. And... Yeah. Uh, this is obviously the thing we're looking for to to get them to like kind of get away from the status quo yeah. and naming that mm-hmm. too in some way so that they'll they'll do that. It was an important thing because it was the kind of naming the enemy of what we were trying to do. Yeah. And you know we came we kind of stumbled upon that uh, you know just iterating internally because we started to think about trying to study storytelling and try to study study the hero's journey and all that kind of stuff and just trying to understand who is going to be our enemy. And then, you know, telling stories and coming up with like a, a, a story to explain kind of the shift that we saw, we started to realize, especially myself, you know, like having built so many of those form-based systems in the past, how literally insane it was. If you were to abstract it out and say like, this is how we are treating, you know, our customers. And so that was the aha moment that led to no form. When all you're trying to do is, get a customer as a, as a company and you're spending all this money driving people to a place and that place happens to your website. And then when they show up, there's no one there and there's no way to talk to them and there's no way to connect them aside from them filling out a form that maybe you know, they'll get a response in a week, uh, a month, you know, or sometimes months from that. Mm-hmm. The whole thing seems kind of insane. And yeah. we came up with the analogy of the, of the, of the store and saying like, Hey, you know, think about your website like a store. And imagine going into a store and there's no one in the store and you can't buy anything. And the best you can do is leave your name, phone number, title, and lots of other information on a piece of paper. You leave the store and then one magical day, someone tries to call you or contact you and tell you, hey, Andy, we're ready to sell you something. Can you come back to the store? Right? If you said that to anyone and everyone would laugh, including everyone in sales and marketing, and we'd say that's literally what you do. And what I love about how you're naming the enemy, I mean, so naming the enemy has become a, a common thing now because I think a lot of people yeah, sort of yeah. realize that the story structure, you mm-hmm. can learn a lot from it in, in and use that in your pitching and your strategic narrative. But I think a lot of people take that enemy to be what we really traditionally would look at as the problem. So um, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the enemy is, in, in taking your situation, I can't get um, customers <laughs> to interact with me mm-hmm. or I can't mm-hmm. do this. What you did is you named the enemy as the status quo game that they were playing. Mm-hmm. You named it as their own thing. And I think that actually is a better way even to look at movies. So like Star Wars, 
Mm-hmm. You know, yep. Darth Vader is typically seen as the enemy, and of course he is in some ways. But in another sense, he's a kind of sideshow to totally, what's totally. really going on, which is the internal battle inside Luke, the internal Amen. battle to get away from some sta- this status quo game of being a complaining teenager uh, and, you know, to, <laughs> exactly to right. becoming something new. The real enemy is that, his own way of doing it. And mm-hmm. that's why I think what you're naming the enemy works, whereas a lot of times it, it, it doesn't. Um, it seems to work best when, it, when actually it was a great, it was a great game. To play like forms was a great it game a great to game. play <laughs> you know it was yeah, this, the totally. right game uh th- mm-hmm. that seems to seems to be a criteria for doing this well oh totally and it was you know it was the right game for a time and that was the again back to what we were talking about earlier which was my big learning was like everything has a, a time you know mm-hmm. context with it and if you can't take lessons from your history or lessons that you've seen played out and not consider the context that they were in, right? And, and I, I always felt like, because I did it incorrectly most of my life, I, I kind of took lessons that I wanted to, to be true, but I, you know, I examined them in every quantitative and qualitative way, but I forgot the most important thing, which was the context that they were operating in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We've talked so far about the story you were telling when you started Drift, um, mm-hmm. Has mm-hmm. it has it changed uh, in any significant definitely. way? It, it has. It, you know, it's expanded, and you know, it started from a very small kind of entry point, uh, which is still relevant to a much bigger one. We launched the product called Drift Video recently. That really came from similar kind of observation that we had with messaging. I had been looking at video uh, for probably a decade, wondering when it was the right time to build a video product or use video for something and, and started to see the same kind of trends of like, oh, wow, everyone I walk by is on their phone. What are they doing on their phone? They're consuming video. You know, YouTube or Masterclass or Stories in the form of Snapchat or Instagram, and most of us are creating video now, which is a big leap. And also coming up with the story behind why that mattered and, and similar patterns uh, that we use with chat. Mm-hmm. But I think the bigger story that we've learned is that, you know, the 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 thing that we're battling with the enemy is not just form, it was really, you know, friction. And that the internet has been has done one great thing, reduce friction from a process. I once saw you uh, present, I think when you were starting to get into this more expanded story, mm-hmm. and you said, hey, it used to be about later, now it's about now. Yeah. And totally. that friction is all about, yes, there's the friction, but but the friction was always okay. You know, it was sort of like, yeah, we have mm-hmm. some friction, but uh, whatever. It's only because whatever. of yeah, the yeah. demand for now that the friction becomes not okay. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a big shift in, in our time, right? It's just like uh, everything is about now, right? We live in this world of now. Like that wasn't ever true before. Everyone, you know, everyone of a certain age uh, specifically has only grown up in a world where everything is about now. It's about 24-7, 365. I can get what I want, what I want. And this this has to do for us with the bigger paradigm shift, which is why we started Drift, right? The movement, the move of power from the company to the buyer. Mm-hmm. So the buyer is mm-hmm. in this world now, and the buyer is saying, I can buy anything I want 24-7, 365. It doesn't matter where in the world I'm buying it from. Everything's accessible to me. The world mm-hmm. is flat now. 
And in B2B, those kind of companies, they don't operate in that in those terms. They think nine to five. They think my schedule. They think, you know, weekends off, holidays, and we'll get back to you when we want to get back to you. And none of us live in that world. Mm-hmm. We're living that right now during this, these times, this crisis, this pandemic, right? We are still operating in a world where we expect that we can, you know, visit Amazon or visit XYZ site and get anything we want 24-7, even during these times. But these companies are still operating in this, in this weird idea that people will just wait around until they're ready uh, for, to get back to them. You know that I work with CEOs on this stuff. And one of the yeah, challenges sure. I sometimes have is we'll come up to this name for the new game or category and name for the <laughs> yeah. old game. Yeah, yeah. And we'll look at it and say, you know, it's it's not quite as smooth and, and obvious as uh, <laughs> conversational marketing. Or, you know, subscription yeah. economy, which is the Zora one that I write about a lot. Yeah. And, Zora. Yeah, yeah. and I actually posted this on, on LinkedIn and Tian Tsuo, the CEO of Zora, chimed yeah, in and said, great. oh, my God, we it was totally not obvious to us at the beginning. And it, we hated it and we actually abandoned it for like a year. And I'm curious for you. like We when, did the same thing. Yeah, exactly t- tell, me same. About that. tell me about that. We had, Dave Gerhardt and myself had just been going on and on and on and on, you know, playing the word game, trying to figure this out. So we, we came up with the name for competition marketing, I believe in 2016. And I hated it. I could not stand it. And uh, we abandoned it because I hated it so much for a whole bunch of reasons. Like, uh, you know, it only talked about marketing, didn't talk about the greater challenge. So it was narrow in some ways. Conversational was such a long word. And I was like, I don't think anyone can spell conversational. Like, <laughs> I, I, don't, I think it's like just too long for the average person to spell that word. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, oh my goodness, I couldn't, I can't tell you how much I hated it. And we put it on the shelf and we didn't pay attention to it until we heard from actually, I believe it was Gartner first, who was like wanted to write something about conversational marketing. We we're like, what? <laughs> uh, and then we looked up again and we were like, wait, other people are starting to use it. Wait, people are using this conversational marketing now. And then now uh, soon after that, Wiley approached us by writing a book. And so like the market was uh, using it and gravitating to it, even at the time that we were kind of internally abandoning it because we, we hated the name so much and it wasn't obvious. I'm going to have this tape of what you just said. Uh, with me all the time so that I can play it for teams because, you know, there, oh my goodness. Yeah. there there is this hindsight effect where, you know, oh, yeah. now it looks like so obvious and so smooth yeah. and all the rest, but it, 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 not feel it almost, I think it almost never is, if, if ever is. No, it was painful. It was so much pain and we had so much internal debate and wringing our hands and just being... I don't know, wildly disappointed with the name, but that was the best that we could come up with, mm-hmm. which is um, funny to see now. Any advice for uh, others who are going through this journey, for CEOs in particular, who might not have started from this vantage point like you did? Any advice for them as they go through this structuring, this narrative, and, and thinking about it? Well, one, you know, definitely read all your stuff. You inspired us with the subscription economy work that you did as well as the guys who wrote Play Bigger. We had spent a lot of time talking to Chris Lockheed. But I'd say, you know, it comes down to kind of the beginning of our chat. It's really, you have to let go of the ego, which is hard as a leader, as a CEO, of like wanting to name this category. So first, you know, should there even be a category? Maybe there should or shouldn't be. In most cases, there shouldn't be. You know, separate out your, your desire for that with really trying to name a change that's happening in the world today. And that change shouldn't be one that you've, 
tried to create. It should be a change that already exists. It should be a truth, right? I call it the head nod, head nod thing. And we were doing this in some storytelling stuff that we're working on now, which is like what you want to do when you're writing a story, like in this, in this context, right? To position a category, to create a category, is that you need a head nod moment, which, I, which we also call the inception moment. You, you want to hit on a truth that is internal to your audience, that they believe, Right. So it's something that they already believe, whether they do it or not. In the case of our, in, in the case of what we did, we knew that demand gen marketers and and uh, marketers in general didn't like forms. You know that they were getting tired, that the game was kind of um, not working as well as it used to. And so there was already this feeling in the back of their head. Not many of them talked about it. Not many of them externalized that. But we used that as kind of what we call inception to hit on. Uh, something that they already thought was true, right? Or, or you know, a position that they already thought is true. And so when naming a category, creating any of this stuff, you want to do the same thing. It yeah. has to be a truth that they believe already. Yeah. Because you cannot convince anyone of your truth. It's so interesting you say that. The way I think about it is sense-making. So they are seeing, yeah. there's a lot of things happening in their world, and they haven't quite put them all together yet. You know, it's almost like mm-hmm. there's the why now, that slide with like the 15 yeah. million, you know, why nows. Yeah. But yeah. you, by naming it and boiling it down to something very, very compact mm-hmm. and, you know, ultimately almost so compact that it's not quite exactly true, but it doesn't yeah. matter. It's like sense making. Yeah, mean, yeah. You know, forms, it's, it's I'm sure truthful. a lot of people are still doing great with forms, <laughs> you know. For sure. That sense-making act is what we're looking for. And in the same way, when I work with teams, like in order to test it, we're always taking it out in sales, some version of sales. So it's uh, actual sales calls or the CEO giving a keynote of some kind. And what we're looking for is exactly what you said, which is the head nod. And the head nod, mm-hmm. I think, is very much what Chris Voss, the uh, FBI hostage negotiator yeah, 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 who wrote yeah. uh, sure. uh, Never well. Split the Difference, is talking about. He's talking mm-hmm. about the that's right, that when we get the other side to say that's right, you know, before we've talked about the product or anything like that, um, mm-hmm. then we have an, an empathetic connection. And we can we can yeah, talk about that. Yeah, we love that book. Where it's kind of like a Bible internally. So oh, yeah. I'm glad you brought it up. But that that is true. People get so caught up on that they're going to evangelize and that they're going to proselytize something and that they're going to convince people of of some opinion, you know, that they have, which is not the case, right? I'd say you know, there's a new book that I'm having my whole team read, which could help your audience, which is called Storynomics. I don't know if you've read it, but it's by Robert McKee, which is, you know, a famed writing instructor, which everyone should know. But if they don't want to start with screenplay uh, or story, which is (laughs) mostly around screenplay writing, they should they should read Storynomics, which is more uh, around marketing. And I was always uh, kind of surprised. You know, I'm sorry to go on a rant here, but I'm an engineer. So I was I didn't know anything about marketing, even though I built marketing software my whole career And, and starting Drift. I really tried to learn marketing. And it finally made sense to me when I started to put it in the frame of storytelling, yeah. of decision-making, yeah. of biases. And so I started from that angle. And I was so surprised that for most marketers and most people trying to do this work, that they don't read any of that stuff, that they don't even understand storytelling or decision-making or any of that, because that is marketing. 
That is that is what we are all trying to do. It's not a tactic or technique. It's really a story and a connection and an empathy that you have to develop with your audience. Yeah, totally. I I don't know if you know my story. So I was an engineer starting, and yeah. I was having I was sort of failing miserably at pitching this uh, startup idea, and I stumbled upon McKee's landmark book. Oh, I didn't know uh, that part. Yeah, this was about this was like in '99. Uh, so basically, one of the investors wrote back and to to our pitch and said, "Andy, I rate every pitch I get on a scale of one to ten, and yours is a one." And then he, in parenthesis, oh <laughs> he wrote uh, worst in case we thought one might be the top of his uh, of his rating yeah, scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, but then he wrote uh, in the margin because he had printed it out and sent it back. He wrote not a compelling story. And it was like two weeks later, I was walking mm-hmm. by this Barnes and Noble in Manhattan, and I saw this sign in the window. It said, "For anyone who wants to tell a compelling story." And there was an arrow to this wow, book. Wow, big exact word. <laughs> and yeah. and so I read so and. It it wasn't that it told me how to it wasn't it didn't like no. just tell me how to like add storytelling to my pitch. It taught me how to restructure the pitch using story as a kind of model for how the buyer makes a decision. Yeah, and yeah. that and for for us engineers, which you were one of, yes, the model and the framework makes sense. And for a lot of people who aren't that kind of thinker, that kind of logical thinker, it might not make sense. That you have to start with the with the framework. The way I was taught, you know, is what's the problem? What's the solution? Mm-hmm. Let me tell you why we're better. Which is the basic positioning framework yeah. that comes from like crossing the chasm. This was a totally different structure. And you're right. I think as a coder, it was especially interesting because it is a you know it's like a code. It's like it's like a code yeah. to the like the API of the brain, so that you can talk to it. Yeah, and that's why when I read stuff on decision making, whether it's like Kahneman on thinking fast and slow, or or other stuff that I've read, like it, as an engineer, I'm like. Wow, this makes all the sense in the world. Now I know why I make decisions that the, the way I do. I read, you know, influence um, and understand cognitive biases. Like, oh, now I get it. Now I'm starting to yeah. understand why this works. Yeah. Where before I was trying to understand it purely from the output or the marketing technique, and I couldn't really understand why certain campaigns would work or certain stories would work or certain uh, messages would work until I understand the framework. Yeah. And that's yeah. why I, I, I love reading this stuff because it always comes from that. Yep. from that point of view. Well, you've uh, you've executed extremely well in the framework. So congrats and uh, and, <laughs> thanks. and uh, thanks so much for uh, for sharing all that with me. Thank Annie. you so much, Andy. <laughs> Thank you for influencing so much of, of my thinking. Cool. Oh my God, my mom was right. Listening to David makes you want to get up and start a company like right now. But my favorite takeaway from our talk was that link between story and decision making. Yeah, you can be more successful in business if you tell stories, blah, blah, blah. But the real goldmine is when you start seeing story structure as a model for buyer decision making. When you realize that ultimately urgency is about giving them a new context, a new narrative through which to see the world. The Bigger Narrative is produced and edited by me, Andy Raskin, with music by Stephen Emerson and podcast cover art by Angela May Chen. Carla Borelli inspired the show by telling me I should do it over coffee. Thanks to David Cancel, as well as Lacey Berrien, Becky Garber, and everyone at Drift. Special thanks also to Scott Maxwell, Dave Gerhardt, Naaman Khan, Hinton Shaw, Randy Barshak, Victoria Zenoff, Audrey Fairbrother, Silvio Menendez, and Carol Wasserman. And remember, 
The company story is the company strategy.